I'm joined in this episode by founder of the charity Copperfill, Chris Halenga, whose journey of living with a terminal cancer diagnosis, I think is an extraordinary story, one of courage and of someone changing the goalposts when it comes to their own care, creating a magical life and a successful charity. I met Chris when she and I both spoke at the Do Lectures and I noticed then there was a radiance about her and I'd been intrigued to speak to her ever since. At the moment, Chris is writing her first book, How to Glitter a Turd, and we had a frank chat about what writing her story was unearthing in her during this time. I think that I still hold a lot of shame and uh, guilt around my diagnosis and who I was before I was diagnosed and I've never I've never dealt with it I've never dealt with it because I think so there was there was a Chris at 22 years old who was very unsure of herself very insecure very um, sad a lot of the time but not really knowing why and then there was no gap between me not knowing who I was not being happy in life to then being diagnosed and then having to deal with that huge monster of a thing having this conversation with Chris had a profound effect on me during lockdown when we talked about the simple things in life and how that simplicity gets forgotten about in everyday life. As ever, I would love if you could rate and subscribe to this podcast to help other people find it. Here's our conversation. The reason why I wanted to speak to you is because you're living with um, stage four cancer and you have been for 10 years. And I mean, I personally can't imagine that journey that you've that you're, you've been on it, you are on, I got a very good feel of it when I watched your film last night, Di- Dying to Live, great great title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what's it been like? And what, what were the first few years like after you heard um, your diagnosis? Um, do you know what? I kind of... Whenever I try to look back over the last 11 years, the only thing I can really think that it's been a bit of a whirlwind. Um, I think because I was diagnosed and then immediately started Copperfield, my life became something so alien and different to what it was before my diagnosis. And I, because I was so up for it that, and so, um, I don't know, in, in it all so much. Um, and I was so excited all the time about what we were achieving. It felt good. And it felt like I, um, it felt like my, my life was purposeful and, um, the cancer thing kind of became this thing on the side, um, which is really weird given that, you know, I had to go through a lot of treatments. I've had, you know, all sorts of invasive things done to me. Um, but always I bounce back thinking, well, now I crack on with work. Now I keep going with what I want to do with the charity. Um, that it's only really when I stepped away from the charity a little bit, when I realized, you know what, have I actually dealt with the huge impact of the diagnosis really? Um, only when I gave myself time to think when I wasn't the CEO of a growing charity, that I realized that, wow, have I really processed this stuff? Or did I fling myself so hard into work um, and making the charity a success that I never really truly dealt with stuff? 
Um, and I think that was a, a, a tough realization that maybe I had done that. Um, but something that I was willing to kind of listen to, process, um, and go through the motions with as well. So um, it's been, I don't know, I don't know how I would sum up the last 11 years, but on, uh, on the whole, it's been pretty magical. Mm. That's incredible that you're saying it's, it's magical when actually it could have been the worst 10 mm. years of your life. Yeah. I think that's down to you and how you've used this time in a, in a way to heal lots of other people as well as your own healing journey. So I want to talk to you a bit about mortality and did you ever think about your own mortality before you got ill? Was it something, was there something you ever thought about? Um, I had, I, well, I thought about mortality, not necessarily my own, but it became very apparent and obvious that death was a thing when, um, I guess, you know, as kids, we had pets. <laughs> and I think that was my first indication that life ends. And then um, I, I guess it became really, truly real when my grandma passed away when I was um, like 15, 16. And it came as such a shock. It was really sudden. Um, and I found that the hardest. I think that was my first kind of wake up call and indication that again life ends and, mm. and it can end really abruptly and really I believe unfairly um and then when I was 20 my dad died really suddenly as well so um that was of a heart attack and it was it came with no warning uh, well some warning because he was a smoker a long time smoker and didn't really look after himself but uh, it was sudden um and I think that's you know, I, I didn't really feel like I needed another reminder, but it came. Um, and that's when I, I guess, realized that life isn't infinite and that we had to make the most of it as much as possible. Um, but I don't think that really, truly rang true to me and what that actually meant for my life until I was diagnosed with obviously a terminal type cancer diagnosis. So, um, yeah, I don't think it can really, 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 truly hit home until it happens to you. Like in terms of you being told that you are likely going to die sooner than you might think. Not that I've ever been told that. No, no one's ever said that. No one's ever said, look, this is what, this is the kind of time frame that we're looking at or, you know, or use the prognosis word or anything like that. Um, I've, I've kind of, I think I've already set the cues when it comes to appointments where I say like, hey, well, this is what we're, I guess this is what we're going to deal with and all the rest of it. And it's never come up. I think I've also been really lucky that I've had doctors who've never felt the, the need to say those words. Um, I think that like me, they know that they might not be true anyway. Like who can really know when someone's going to die? Um, probably if they thought it was really, really imminent, they would have said, look, we're not going to survive maybe beyond six months or whatever, but um, that was never the case for me. My cancer's never been like, it's never taken over my body to that extent that they think it's imminent. And do you have anxiety about dying and death? I mean, do you, I know, cause you know, you're living very differently to a lot of people. Mm. And I wonder if that changes how you feel about death and your fear of death. Um, 
you know what? I'm, I'm don't think I have anxiety about the actual dying. Um, I think I've come to terms with that. What I worry more about is the uh, dying. Well, um, mm. I think it's the process towards the end that um, concerns me more than the actual physical dying. So I want it to, to go well. Um, and I think having learned what I now know and meeting people like you and listening to your talks and, and um, reading amazing books like um, With the End in Mind by Catherine Mannix, like oh, I, I know, yeah, such a great book. I know that it is possible to have a good death. And I think a lot of people don't understand that there, there is such a thing as a good death. Um, and, and so I guess I concern myself with the thought of like, where, where do I want to die? And, and how do I want that to look? And do I want to be in the position to say when, look, enough's enough when it comes to treatment, I want to be able to feel like I have that power to say, do you know what? Enough's enough. Um, we've come to the end of the line with this. I want to live out the rest of my days with the best quality of life. And mm. that's what I want. Um, so I feel like, because I, I can potentially have that control makes me feel better about the situation. Um, I mean, it all depends, you know, what happens towards that time. Um, you know, things might change completely. And obviously I've got a, a, a vague plan in my head about what I'd want in terms of like, I'd prefer to die at home or in a hospice, but not a hospital. I don't want to be given shitloads of interventions towards the end. Um, and I, and I want it to be, like a calm, peaceful thing. I mean, everyone, I guess, dreams of that. But um, I want I want to be surrounded by the people that I love with great music. And I just want it to be like a nice ending rather than a dramatic ending, um, which is, I guess, I think a lot of people assume that death can be really dramatic because of what we see on TV and in movies. And um, it doesn't have to be that way. So mm. I know that now. And that really empowers me. Have you written any of these things down? Of course I have. Your checklist of to-do list thing that you um, handed out at your do lecture was so useful. It's more than anything for me to kind of go, oh my God, I've already done that. I've already done that. I'm so proud of myself. And all the books that you um, recommended people read, I was like, I've read most of these. And I feel, I feel like I'm winning at life because <laughs> I'm so yes. in control of my death. <laughs> um, and that made me feel really good. But yeah, so I, but only recently I've done my um, lasting power of attorney for financials well and health. Um, so I feel really good about that. It was kind of like something that was like hanging over me. Like, should I do it? Should I not? Should I make it that like strict? Should I really pay money to decide what I want at the end? It made me feel really good that I have. Um, and yeah, I've written down what I would like to happen and what kind of a funeral I want or even though I don't really want a funeral I would just want it to happen like well I just want to not be here and for people to celebrate if they want but they don't have to um mm. not celebrate I mean why would they be celebrating but remembering me however they want I don't celebrating want celebrating your life yeah. yeah celebrating my life um I just, just don't want there to be any pressure on anyone to do certain things have you heard of those um funerals called living funerals no. Where you actually you actually go to it yourself while you're still alive. <laughs> I mean, so... you know what? This is kind of my beef with like massive parties and stuff happening after someone dies. Because I'm like, I'm you're not, not gonna there. I'm not gonna get to enjoy that. So why would I want that to happen? So um I do know, you know, people so friends of mine who've known that they're really close to the end 
with their cancer. Um, and my friend Fran, what she did um, on Facebook, just be- I mean, it was days before she died. She's like, I know that when I'm gone, you're going to bring out all these old pictures of me and all these amazing memories of me. And you're going to plaster them all over Facebook, but I'm not going to bloody be here to see them. So let's do it now. Just bring out all your old embarrassing photos, <laughs> bring out the best memories that you have of me. Tell me how you remember me. Cause I want to know now because I'm not going to see this shit. <laughs> and I thought, Oh, that is so brilliant. I was so, that really stuck with me when she did that. It makes yeah. so much, and yeah, that's the thing because I, Grace and Perry did a show um, on Channel Four, and it was, it was all about rituals, and one mm. of them was about dying. And he had this guy, and um, he wanted to attend his own funeral, so he had a party like a couple of weeks before he died, and mm. it was, and Grayson made this sort of um, ceramic vase urn type thing and people could put little messages and little presents in there like somebody put a whiskey bottle in there to remember that they used to drink a lot and he went through it while they were there and it was really moving it was really beautiful because often people say oh I wish I wish so and so was here at their yeah. own funeral yeah. so yeah you can really understand that Absolutely. you know maybe it's um something to think about I mean I think I'd quite like that but also I think I'd feel really sad as well I want to go back to something that you mentioned a minute ago, which was how you talk to doctors and how you are with doctors. Because I've I've heard interviews where you've talked about in the past about how you are your own best advocate. And I feel that you come across someone who's quite empowered in those conversations. Um, how has that happened? And why, you know, how does that help you? Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I think given what happened to my, uh, I guess, the initial diagnosis, so I for so long had been told that the changes that were happening in my boob were normal and probably hormonal, and I trusted them so much and I believed in what they were telling me so much um, and had absolutely no no knowledge of what was really normal for me and what my body was up to. Um, and it's it's what happened through that process that made me feel, wait, wait a minute, what if I had been more um, more in touch with my body and knowing when things had changed? Wouldn't I feel so much better? Wouldn't my, well, I know for sure that my diagnosis would have been different, that I would, might have got a much earlier diagnosis. So knowing that obviously fueled me thinking, well, this is never going to happen again. I'm going to get to take control in every possible situation that I can when it comes to dealing with medical professionals and knowing what treatments I'm going to choose um, and feeling like I have still got some power in this. I still have some control because it's so easy to feel like your whole life has been grabbed and taken away from you. Someone else is controlling it when it comes Mm. to a cancer diagnosis that they are deciding treatments that could change your life forever um, and really, you know, affect your quality of life. And I knew from the start that that was, I wanted to know all my options, but then I wanted to make the decision whether I was going to take them or not. Um, And um, I think that's really helped me navigate how I deal with this thing. And yeah, and then empowering myself and empowering others. And obviously everything that we do with Copperfield is about empowering someone to know when something's not right with their boobs and feeling like they have the confidence to speak to someone about it. 
Um, so, you know, that rings true. And if I'm telling people to do that, then obviously I need to, you know, listen to that advice myself um, and remember that whenever, you know, when the cancer progresses and I need to decide what treatment I'm going to have next, I need to know what my options are. Um, I don't ever want to be caught out in a way. Um, I don't want, I don't want any nasty surprises. Um, I want to know the deal, you know, I want to know what my options are and I want to be able to feel like I can say no. Um, yeah. I think people so often feel like they have to go along with it. I think sometimes the pressures of the families around them, when someone's been told chemotherapy or nothing, um, sometimes nothing is, it's not great, but if it means that you have some quality of life left before you die, then maybe that is an option. Um, but it, it seems to be taken off the table so quickly grabbed away from people's thoughts because everyone's, everyone's fear feeds into must keep trying things, must keep trying things. And actually, um, sometimes that's not right. I don't mm. think, um, I don't know. Cause I mean, I've been in that position where some, a doctor has said to me, I think you should try this trial, which involves pretty harsh chemotherapy, um, even though I was feeling okay, but my cancer was starting to really wake up again and progress and then growing quite a lot in my liver. And I just thought, am I doing this because he's made me feel scared that I should, or am I doing this because I feel like it's actually going to help me? Mm. And um, I said to him, look, I'm, and I mean, thinking back at this now, I'm like, wow, I was sassy. Um, but I was like, I'm actually really busy this summer. I've got lots of things planned. Um, <laughs> he was like, and he said to me, you might not be alive long enough to do them all. And I was like, okay, bitch, um, that's enough. I'm not, I'm not having you make me feel that bad about the treatments that I'm about to do. Because to me, life, quality of life is so important. And the fact that he hadn't learned that, even after these like three or four years that he's been my doctor, I was like really gutted to more than me. And so I thought, well, then you seem to think that's my only option, but I truly believe there is another option. Mm. And so I found a doctor down here in Cornwall who said, well, you don't have to try that just yet. We can try something else first. And if that doesn't work, then maybe, yeah, let's look at that option again. And I was like, thank the Lord. <laughs> um, and this, it happened to be a drug that did work for quite some time. Didn't give me the side effects that the chemotherapy would have done. Um, and yeah, I chose a path that was, that I felt as well, obviously gut instincts are so important. And I felt that like, that felt, I felt that that was going to be better for me. And I, when I prove myself right, it just is the best feeling. So it sounds to me like you're really learning how to listen to your body, mm-hmm. but also listen to your intuition and your yeah. gut mm-hmm. and think actually, what do I feel that my body needs? Yeah. What do I feel is good for my body? Yeah. And I think with, as with Copperfield, it's saying to young women, young people, what does my body feel like? Does that feel right? If it doesn't, go and, go and get that checked out. And actually, if you feel something's not right, keep fighting that. Mm-hmm. And like you say, get a second opinion. What Have you done any complementary um, treatments that have been good for you personally? Um, I think, well, so the way I kind of tackle my cancer is, um, in a sort of integrative way. So, um, you know, there are lots of alternative treatments, but I don't like to call them alternative treatments because that means that I've, that, that means that I've then turned away from 
the NHS staff, but I haven't. I've combined the two. So complementary or, yeah, so integrative care is kind of how I've approached things. Um, and so, yes, I, I, I do the stuff that my oncologist gives me. And then I try to boost my immune system with lots of other things to make sure that the stuff that he gives me doesn't affect me uh, too much. And also to boost the power of it as well, I guess. Um, so anything from um, vitamin high dose vitamin C infusions and mistletoe therapy to um, reflexology and acupuncture. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a huge bag mixed bag of amazing mm. concoction of stuff that I do um and I mean there's the thing is I could I could do so much more I could I could be spending all day in my kitchen juicing and doing coffee enemas and all these other things and they are great if for some people and if that's how you feel you can get the most out of life and you feel really good about doing those things then yes do them mm. but when I was juicing because I, I went through a period of juicing a lot, not having any sugar. I was like, well, am I happy? Is this making me happy? Yeah, it's not fun, is it's it? Not, it's not fun. Not having sugar <laughs> is not fun. I'm not saying like go out and eat all the sweets in the world, but no. it's about balance. No matter what, yeah. it's about balance. And like, I feel like if something makes me feel good and I feel like I'm really empowered and in control of the situation, then that's, I think that feeds my body really well, no matter mm. what. But um, if something's making me miserable, then what is the point? Yeah, because it's about mentally how you feel as yeah. well, isn't it? What, um, how do people, how, how do you find people react to you knowing that you have a terminal illness like cancer? I mean, like, you know, your family, for instance, how do they, because you look so well. So that must be a bit of a mind bender for people, you know, like when you have a twin sister and I know you're, I think you're very close from what yeah. I can see. Um, how has it affected her? How has it affected your sort of immediate family? How do they treat you? How, how are you with them? What's your sort of relationship? Like? I mean, uh, so many questions. Yeah, so I, I'm not treated any different. <laughs> um, if anything, my, my sister Marin, she doesn't really let me dwell <laughs> on anything. She doesn't let me use cancer as an excuse for anything unless it gives her perks as well. Um, like, actually I was just writing in my book about this how like if it suits her then yes I can use a cancer card if it doesn't suit her then she tells me I can't so like <laughs> using like my blue badge to park outside like I don't know an ice cream shop or something she's like yeah let's do that but let's um, do it, babe. <laughs> but she doesn't let me use it as an excuse to get out of things um, mm. and I think on the whole that works really well and I and I love that you know that it it's just this thing that's part of my life, but it doesn't absorb everything and every conversation and every thought that we have. Mm. But um, sometimes, sometimes I struggle with the fact that people have forgotten and don't. And sometimes I, I kind of want to remind people and shake them a little bit and kind of go, look, guys, can we just remember that I'm, I'm dealing with this huge thing and sometimes the enormity of it just swallows me up and drowns me mm. and I don't want to have to I don't want to have to literally say the words out loud like can we all remember that I've got cancer like I don't I don't want to have to do that but sometimes I feel the need to um and then and then is it because yeah. it, is it like is it because it's like the elephant in the room yeah well I don't know I think we've dealt with the elephant I think the elephant is very much 
yeah, conquered. But um, I think it's more this, the fact that I'm still living with it and that sometimes it does crop up and it's not really ever thought about. It's not considered enough mm. sometimes. I don't want it to be considered all the time. I don't want us to acknowledge the elephant all the bloody time, but mm. sometimes it needs to be acknowledged. Um, and I think, but in a way it helps to kind of recalibrate how we're feeling about life and how like um, it kind of puts things into perspective again. So I think sometimes for me, I kind of go, Oh, remember that the fact that you have got this terminal illness and that life isn't forever. And I'm like, that steers me back on track. I'm like, do you know what right now in this moment does this thing that's really bothering me really matter? And I'm like, mm. and I tell myself, no, it doesn't. And then I crack on. Um, and I think that probably it's probably, that's probably the same. That probably works the same way for, Marin and other people in my family um I think it's a good reminder but yeah I think I mean on the whole people everyone in my life has dealt with it um I don't know you know they probably have their moments of um fear and sadness um that I might not be aware of um mm. but I think on the whole because I always said from the start that and well they've always my Marin has said to me in the, from the start like that she will always take her cues from me so you know when I'm not happy she'll she'll kind of go with that and if I'm mm. if I'm doing okay then everything's okay um so because I'm mostly doing okay everything's okay um so I kind of just go with that but it's it's tricky because you know I can't be okay all the time no, and, and that's what I wanted to ask you, actually, because I wanted to go sort of deeper with you in terms of everyone sees Chris, you know, mm. the founder of Copperfield and, you know, you're sort of beautiful, you know, you look radiant. Everybody knows you've got this, you know, cancer and this diagnosis. But underneath all of that, you know, when you what are those darkest moments? And when you do hit those darkest moments, you know, where do you how do you? cope with that and where do you go with that and who do you reach out to and do you let them see that you're vulnerable are you okay about showing that sort of vulnerability because it's it's important isn't it Mm -hmm. I I definitely believe that um well I've just been reading so many books and stuff and I just like the more I read the more I'm like oh my god there's um but anyway at the moment I'm I'm believing that there's 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 a lot of power in the pain that I go through um, and that um, I can use it to my advantage more than it. I shouldn't let it swallow me up. I can kind of go, okay, grow from this, grow from this, grow from this. So that's what kind of what I tell myself, but that's not, it doesn't always work. Hmm. Um, so I, I don't know, like at the moment I'm writing my book and um, I think it is, it has actually been, the first time that I've really acknowledged the person that I had to say goodbye to in February, 2009. And, um, Oh God, I'm now going to get emotional. <laughs> well, by the way, everyone, uh, everyone always says I make people cry. Yeah. Well, you're, okay. You're bloody good at it. Um, <laughs> so it's, um, I think that I still hold a lot of, um, shame and, uh, I don't know, um, guilt around the time that, uh, around my diagnosis and who I was before I was diagnosed. Um, 
and I've never, I've never dealt with it. I've never dealt with it because I think, um, so there was, there was a Chris at 22 years old who was very unsure of herself, very insecure, um, very um, sad a lot of the time, but not really knowing why. I mean, I was going out with a, a boy that manipulated my every thought and feeling. Um, so that didn't help the situation. And then there was no gap between me not knowing who I was, not being happy in life, to then being diagnosed and then having to deal with that huge monster of a thing. Um, but because I started the charity so quickly, there was never any time to really acknowledge what was happening and that mm. um, I had been given this thing to deal with and really knowing why um, and whether I'm okay with not knowing why. Uh, so, yeah, the book is bringing up a lot of lot a lot of sadness actually a lot of um untreated unthought of stuff that uh I buried away or never had the chance to really deal with um so that I, that's that's what I struggle with is uh that and also um yeah like I was saying you know sometimes this whole thing just feels so big um that I yeah I can't cope back to Chris in a minute in this episode I'm highlighting Chris's charity Copperfill it's the first UK breast cancer charity to solely create awareness amongst young people to detect early symptoms of breast cancer and to educate them to get to know their bodies and to learn really healthy habits for life so for more information or to simply donate please visit copperfield.org and there'll be a link to the Copperfield page in the show notes of this episode now back to the second part of the show so the things that I do to help are um so I'm I do a lot of breath work uh with some amazing breath work teachers mm. to kind of help me release some trauma that I believe I've kind of held in my body somewhere um so I've, I mean, I've tried all sorts of things. I've, I do, I've done um, talking therapies. I first started seeing a counsellor maybe three years into my diagnosis, not, not soon enough. Um, but I didn't realise that that was something that I should do or could do. But it, it, what triggered me to do it is like not stopping crying for like three days over New Year, one year. I was like, why am I, why can't I seem to stop crying and it was only when I think I ran out of tears after three days, I was like, I think I still want to cry, but I physically can't. And I still feel sad. What is going on? And that's when I finally went and sought some help from a counsellor at a hospice. And she was the first person that made me feel really comfortable to talk about stuff that really, really scared me without the fear of scaring her too, because obviously she was untouchable. <laughs> like, you know, she was just this wall that I could speak to about anything and like nothing was going to make her cry. And I guess that's when I realised that admitting fears in front of people that I loved was really hard because I would always worry that I would make them scared and I didn't want to do that. So instead of dealing with it, I would just put it away. Um, and so talking to someone who couldn't be affected in that way was really, really helpful. Um, mm. So yeah, I found that helpful. I felt I, you know, I found different techniques um, really helpful. I think what you're describing also is grieving. Actually, while you're living your life, you're also grieving your life. 
it's a really hard thing to deal with yeah yeah you deal with so much loss I think um like loss of so many things when you're diagnosed with cancer um and you've never really given the space or time to really acknowledge and yeah and grieve I guess for those things so and then yeah when it comes to cancer yeah there's losses after loss like there's things that you have to be okay with day after day like okay so today I have to be okay with the fact I'm never going to have children tomorrow I might have to be okay with the fact that um I don't know I'll never have this or whatever you know there's lots of things that crop up day after day and like Mm. all the time I think society tells people with um I don't know there's this constant pressure to make the most of every day to be grateful every fucking day and I'm like I can't be that grateful every day it's not sustainable to be that grateful every day it's exhausting to be grateful every day Mm. I can't be happy in this moment every fucking day because I'm alive like I think it's okay to acknowledge that that's what's happened there that moment of you telling me that I can't now do this is really hard but then the thing about me is then I concentrate on the things I can do um I mean I I mentioned the fact that I couldn't have children I mean that doesn't affect me because I I actually have never had the urge to have children anyway like that's never been a problem for me um so I feel really lucky but Mm. it's more the the choice the annoying thing about it is like not having the choice myself that the choice was taken away from me um yeah but the thing is I probably would have chosen not to have children anyway but yeah it's funny isn't it what about love is there is there are you able to consider relationships to people? Because, I mean, I know that's quite personal and you don't have to answer. But I was just thinking about it as you were talking. Yeah. How does that um, I don't know. I don't really know how I feel about relationships anymore because it's been so long since I've been in one. Um, but, yeah, the year I was diagnosed, I met a guy and we were together for four years. So, actually, from the – like, so maybe six months into retreat in, – six months after my diagnosis, I was already in a relationship again. And, um, I mean, you probably saw in my documentary that we broke up and what hurt the most is like that we had been together through some of the hardest times of my life. And I didn't know how to do a lot of those things without having that someone. And so I had to relearn having cancer without being in a relationship. Mm. Um, and it was like starting all over again. Um, so, yeah it was really intense and it was intensified because of cancer um but then yeah I've not been in a relationship since then and I don't know how I feel about it I don't Mm. like I'm I'm I know that I'm worthy of love no matter what I do know that I'm worthy of happiness um and that I can be loved no matter what I know that but it doesn't make like facing the prospect of being in a relationship knowing that I might die on them any easier Mm. um because I have witnessed so much grief from partners who have been left behind I have seen men break down Mm. over and over again and the more I see that the more I don't want to inflict that on anyone so that's kind of how I feel but at the same time I think well anything can happen 
he might die first. That's he it. might get hit by that bus. And actually, um, he could be leaving me behind. And so, <laughs> you know, I tried to think, well, don't be so silly. That's a silly thought. But it's hard. And until I meet the absolute demigod of a human to make it worth my while, <laughs> um, it's, uh, it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. But I don't know. I, I was going to ask you another question about actually right now we're all in this sort of lockdown situation and I was thinking that everyone's living with this sort of feeling of uncertainty but obviously that's how you live every day mm-hmm. um so it's a bit like welcome to my world isn't yeah. it? You know, everyone's now living with a future they they don't know what's around the corner and they don't know what's going to happen in the future um how can those people navigate this time do you think I thought maybe you'd be quite good to ask. Yeah, I'm, I'm a pro when it comes to uncertainty. <laughs> um, I <knew> so, <laughs> well done. Um, no, uh, do you know what? I think it's still so different for everyone. Um, I can't really say that I'm I'm an expert in this, but I do know that like not planning ahead. You know, I know what that feels like. I know that you don't, you can't plan ahead. But then I've never been one to plan ahead anyway. I think that's just part of my personality to not mm. plan. Like, I don't like to be too organised with life. I like to, I like life to sometimes just happen. Um, so I, that's, you know, I think because of my personality anyway, I can deal with it better. But um, I think, yeah, just being okay with the fact that you can't control things right now um, even though that's hard, but taking each day as it comes is literally the only way that we can get through this. So accepting that sooner rather than later is going to do you much better. Um, and yeah, the not knowing when we're going to be out of this is is hard. Like even even though I have I have um, I have experience in this area, I have experience of like not knowing what life will bring. This is this has still shaken me as much as everyone yeah, else. I think this is still feels very new, um, even for me. Mm. Well, it's very odd because, in a way, for you more than anyone, you just want to go on and do what you need to do. You know, mm-hmm. with your charity and your events that you have planned. You know, people had festivals planned for all through summer holidays. Yeah. I mean, you know, we just don't know what's what's going to happen. Yeah, and it is a very odd odd time and yeah. I, I guess in a way for you though it's made you write your book or help you to write your book <laughs> yeah I know it's come out a weirdly perfect time like I can't go outside oh, okay I can't procrastinate doing something else oh okay um so it's, it has kind of made me sit down and write it which is so weird how things like that happen I know but it yeah is. no going back to your point of like well I should be making the most of life you know like at the fir- at first I did think so I've, I've worked this hard for so long to stay alive and now all I can do is be in my house. Are you bloody kidding me? Um, <laughs> like, this is what I get for winning at life for Keeping 11 alive. years. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> but then, you know, what I think what, what the other thing that cancer teaches you is what this has taught me is to be happy with simplicity, to be happy with the smaller things um like you know I think so often what's portrayed in movies about like oh when someone gets a cancer diagnosis they have to go really big so they have to go around the world and do all these amazing things and I was like oh that feels like so much pressure that actually wouldn't it be greater if I could just be happy 
it get that same level of satisfaction out of life from simply hanging out at the beach with my friends or at making a cup of tea you know it's like that's a, a cheaper and b more uh doable and because what what happens when they come home from these amazing trips like do they then want to bugger off somewhere else like can they not i think just being happy with simplicity is i think one of my my one of my life's greatest achievements <laughs> Yeah, but writing the book, um, yeah, has come as at a great time. So I feel like I can still get something out of life and be productive at the moment whilst being in my house and not doing what you know other things that I love, such as seeing people that I love. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, I you know when I wrote my book, it's so difficult because it's not just writing a book; it's you're putting your heart onto paper, yeah. and that's really hard you feel you feel very exposed you feel very vulnerable mm. but you kind of feel like you need to be authentic as well because otherwise it's just not, it's, I don't see the point in it otherwise I think and being able to analyze things in a in a way that can help others is what's so great about this book because and I think that's what when I realized that I had this um stuff that I hadn't actually dealt with yet for the as I was writing about relationships actually I was like, oh my God, there's so much stuff that I'm feeling really sad about. Is that useful for people? Do I need to do a bit more work on this before I really write mm. about it? Because I thought 11 years, crikey, I've, it's, this isn't fresh. This isn't Because I, I was reading, uh, listening to this amazing thing that Glennon Doyle was saying the other day, um, or so, at, so on some video that I watched her say, um, that she was saying like, are you writing with an open wound or are you writing gold? Have you come are you writing because something's just happened to you and you feel, and it feels very fresh and you feel like you need to get it out of you? Or are you writing it since having processed it all, realizing something gold is within that and then writing about it? And I was like, mm. you know what? There's some things I feel like 90% of it is gold because I've had it for so long and I feel like I am now an expert in my life. Um, and then there's this like 10% of like, oh shit, that feels really raw still. And I'm not sure if that's going to be at all useful but then I think, does it have to be useful or does it just have to go, do people have to just think, okay, well, that's, that seems heavy for her, okay. <laughs> um, and then kind of just go with it. So I think it's going to be a, a bit of a mishmash of gold and open wound stuff mixed together. Um, so what, what do you think has kept you alive these last 10 years? Do you know what? I wish I had one clear answer because I think I could monetize it and make a lot of money. <laughs> uh, no. Um, do you know what? I, I don't know. I think it's been a real mix of things. I think it's a combination of my attitude. I think it's, yeah, my strong resilience. I think it's my um, combination of amazing treatments, amazing technology, um, charity. Cobfield has played a massive role in me feeling like I have a purpose and a will to stay alive. And I think, you know, not, not, that combination of things is can't work for every single person because those things can't be, can't be for everyone. Um, so it's really hard for, I think people are so desperate to know like how I've done it. What am I doing? What am I taking? What, what am I eating that might then help them to live a longer life? But I don't think it works like that. Mm. I just, there's nothing I can single out that would say this is certainly what will help. Um, but I think it's a combination of things. And I feel very grateful and lucky that I've had access to treatments at the right time that seem to be 
I mean, at the moment, I'm due for scans again. So God knows what the cancer is currently up to, but I feel good. Um, so I'm going with that. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that answers your question at all. Well, it does. Uh, but I, I mean, I also think that Copperfill as something that you've created has given your life massive meaning and purpose. I think it's so powerful. In a way, do you feel that Copperfill will be here long after we've gone? You know, that's a legacy that you've created and that, that's something that you can leave behind. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel like do you ever feel like that with with Copperfill? Yeah. I mean, my hope for Copperfield is that it there there will be a day when we're not needed and that we can kind of go, do you know what? everyone like everyone's going to be diagnosed early from this day forward so we're not needed um that would be amazing I'd love to see that day but I don't think I will Mm. um so yeah for to know that it has everything in place for it to survive without me is like so great it's so it's so nice to know that um so that is an amazing legacy um but like I said you know I'm it doesn't have to take this big thing that I've worked so hard on to make to give life meaning um mm. because I, the the last thing i want is for people to kind of look at my life and go but i haven't started a charity how how, how is my life still meaningful yeah. and like it doesn't work like that it, yeah. it you can find meaning in like like i said before like um my, one of my proudest achievements is knowing that i can be happy with simplicity um like that is that to me is legacy mm. that to me someone can go back in my life and be like oh, you know chris was really Chris was really good at being happy with the simple things. Um, oh yeah, and she had a charity. She started a charity that was like incredible too. But you know, I I'd like that the big things and the little things matter. Um, yeah, that's really nice. So, and I think the book is great too. Like the reason I think one of the one of the main reasons I want this book to be written is that because um, I do I genuinely preempt a fascination that we will look back at cancer and go oh. Do you remember at that time there, there was this thing called cancer and it killed like most people, like it killed a lot of people. Um, mm. Won't people want to know what that was like? Like, mm. I don't know, like what will actually happen if cancer is a curable disease, like mm. across the board for all cancers, like, because obviously some cancers are incredibly hard to treat. Their, their mortality rate is insane. Um, mm. Whereas breast cancer, I guess, is one of the better cancers to have not that I'm saying it's great um but you know we are so lucky that so many treatments and so much money is plowed into research for breast cancer but there are uh there yeah there there might just be a day that will not be in my lifetime I don't think uh where cancer is isn't something that kills people anymore um Mm. or there'll be there'll be a time where people just want to understand what terminal illness felt like uh for people at, at this time in life um and they can read about it in my book (laughs) this morning i came across this quote randomly i thought and i thought oh i'm gonna read that to chris great (laughs) i was i I know can i I write it down and use it in my book (laughs) i'll send it to you actually i'll email it to you um it's a steve jobs quote actually and um I, I wrote an article for this magazine and uh, I was looking, you know, like you do you go down a rabbit hole and I suddenly yeah. saw this and it said, death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life because almost everything, 
all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. And I thought, that I know that felt like me, uh, it made me think about you. I mean, I wish I could have written something like that. (laughs) You can use it, baby. (laughs) I mean, how do we feel about plagiarism these days? Is that sort of thing? (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, my darling. Thanks for listening to this podcast. And don't forget to subscribe and review it if you can. I'd love that. I'll see you next time.